Hi, I'm Bob Bashansky. Welcome to the latest edition of Politics, a Love Story. If fracking isn't at the top of everyone's list of things to hate or to love, it was and maybe will again sometime soon. What exactly is fracking? What is the process from when a landman approaches the property owner until something is extracted? We have someone with us today who knows quite a bit about it. He spent some time living in or near Williamsport, Pennsylvania, learning about the business and about how people were affected by agreeing to lease their land. He also learned about the heartache. Personally, I spent 10 summers just north of Williamsport in Wyalusing, along the Susquehanna River, and had been to Williamsport. Our guest today is Colin Geralmack, a professor of sociology and environmental studies at New York University. His new book is Up to Heaven and Down to Hell, Fracking, Freedom, and Community in an American Town. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Colin Geralmack to Politics, a Love Story. Hi, Colin. Hi, Bob. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you very much for being here. This is an important topic. Uh, it's been around for a number of years, and a lot of people have been hurt by it. A lot of people uh, can't wait to be asked to lease their property because they know about the big money. Um, but not everybody understands what the whole process is. Uh, could you start us off with explaining the process from approaching the property owner, signing the almost obtuse, obtuse lease document to the extraction of whatever, please? Of course. So, so the first thing to yeah. So, so the first thing that happens for most people, uh, and I should say, so if you own the property, unless the mineral rights have been severed by a previous owner, you own the subsurface all the way down to the mantle. And so, uh, what typically happened was a lot of people don't even know this. And so, a so-called landman, which is a, usually an independent contractor hired by an oil and gas company, would knock on your door and say, "Hello." Uh, you know, we, do you, you know, there's, there's shale, there's a layer of shale buried deep underneath the ground. We'd like to access it. If you sign a lease, we will get pay you uh, a bonus up front. And that could vary tremendously. Some people who got fleeced might've only made $5 an acre. Other people who were either savvy or who held out and didn't sign a lease right away could get as much as 1000 or even $2,000 per acre. Um, but the, the real game changer for most people or what they hope to be the game changer was that if gas or oil, if you're, if you're uh, west of the Mississippi, uh, was taken out from underneath the ground, you would actually get royalties every month for as long as that well was producing. And so, so you know, many people would get this knock on the door from the landman. Uh, folks, I like to say that a lot of folks around the area where I was are land poor. They may own a lot of land, even 80, 100, 200 acres, but that's land that they inherited from their, from their uh, you know, parents or grandparents who were farmers, and many of them are struggling even to pay the property tax bill. And so, uh, you know, there's, there's folks that love their land. Uh, they, they, you know, they, they understood that there was some risk involved, but many landmen promised, uh, exaggerated not only how much money they would make, but exaggerated how little disturbance there would be. And so then an individual would sign a lease. And some people who signed a lease, nothing ever happened after that. So they got the leasing bonus and that was it. But for others, it was the beginning of the process of hydraulic fracturing. So, uh, I'll give you, maybe I'll walk through it with one person. So one person I came to know, George Hagemeyer, signed a lease. And then what that led to was first they put a driveway, a gravel driveway right down next to his his uh, house. 
That gravel driveway went to a four-acre well pad that they had cleared from the woods behind his field. And then uh, they drill six gas wells. They drilled six gas wells. And so a 150-foot drilling rig drilled vertically over a mile deep until they reached the shale layer. And then the, the, you know, the major innovation that happened in the 2000s is once they hit that shale layer where there's gas trapped inside of the rock, they can, they can use a remote control to, to uh, drill bit to then, when it hits the shale layer, make that drill bit turn and angle so that it now goes horizontally through the shale layer for up to two miles. And that's called horizontal drilling. And so they drilled these six gas wells. They drilled, you know, for a mile in each direction uh, through the shale. And then the fracking part comes in. What we colloquially call fracking is actually is hydraulic fracturing. And this is the particular process of after you've drilled horizontally through the shale layer, you want to create more cracks in more of that shale rock to free the gas. And so they'll pump down millions of gallons of mostly water laced with some kind of propent, usually sand, and then with chemicals, chemicals as anti-corrosive agents and lubricants. And they pump millions of gallons at incredibly high pressure. And what that does is it breaks open the shell. It, it, it breaks open the shell more. It, it creates cracks. And the water shoots through those cracks. And then the sand, as tiny as it is, that sand can hold those cracks open just enough for the gas to escape. And so then, uh, so then the gas is taken back out, and then a pipeline is laid uh, through, was laid through the side of George's field, an underground six-inch diameter pipeline, which takes that gas from his property and pumps it, you know, up into a bigger pipeline, which will shoot it across the East Coast energy markets. And that is more or less the process of uh, fracking. I mean, some of the other things that it includes uh, when, you know, when they were really uh, active on George's property, fracking, if you imagine it takes five million gallons of water to frack one well one time, and there's six wells, that's dozens and dozens and dozens of big rig tanker trucks filled with water uh, lining up. So you would see these massive caravans along the road and parked in his, in his driveway. Uh, after a, after a uh, gas well is drilled, it's usually not hooked up to a pipeline right away. And so they need to do something to release uh, the pressure that builds up from that gas. And so what they did uh, at that time was very common was to flare it, which is where you burn off the gas. And so, uh, you know, for a few days, there would be this massive flame shooting out from above George's property, roaring like a jet engine. Um, and so once, you know, once everything is hooked up and the, the, the gas is flowing to the pipeline, then it's, then, you know, it kind of becomes less of a disturbance as far as there's not a lot of trucks and all that, but you still have this massive well pad in your backyard. If you're like George, if they wound up doing that and that's, and, and that's, uh, you know, as long as those wells are producing, you will have that major well pad with those wells that, that, that is controlled by the gas company. But the big inducement for George, uh, who was, as you say, land poor for the most part, in fact, he had mm-hmm. been a school janitor, hadn't he? That's right. Uh, well, he got, I think, I, I'm getting this right, he got $60,000 for allowing a small diameter pipeline to be buried along the perimeter of his field. And once yeah. the gas was moving through, his first royalty check for the gas was a whopping $34,880. And you point out, then he was a shalionaire. Yes. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and this is a guy who, as, as you mentioned, uh, he was living off a, a, a custodian pension, um, you know, in a modest farmhouse that he had inherited. Uh, and, 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 you know, he, I invited him to come to my class to speak to my students, and, you know, he had just gotten that first big royalty check that you mentioned, and so he rented a stretch limousine <laughs> to take him on a 400-mile round trip, uh, you know, to, to come to New York City in style, 
Uh, he was also was able to use that money to create a college fund for his granddaughter. He bought her a new car when she graduated high school. So yes, he, not many people made out that well, but he is an example of what everybody hoped for is to, is to get this huge windfall that is actually life-changing money. Uh, Colin, your book centers on how the Williamsport area residents negotiated, and I use air quotes around negotiated, the conflict between their commitments, commitments to personal sovereignty and letting others live free, a dilemma that the climate crisis will force all of us to reckon with sooner or later. Uh, the, uh, th- that was a difficult thing for some of these people. And you say that some, some didn't sign individually like George did, but they got together, neighbors in a certain area, mm-hmm. and, and decided that they couldn't let some do it and not others, so they all agreed to do it, but then they negotiated higher uh, upfront payments, lease payments, and royalties. Uh, but not, as you pointed out, this is like a lottery. Not everybody wins. Yeah, so, Bob, I'm glad you brought this up, and this is really sort of the central uh, tension of the book, and that really I try to use this, this one community's response to fracking as a microcosm for, for climate change and other environmental problems that we as a society deal with. And so, you know, the greater Williamsport area on the whole is quite conservative. Uh, I mean, just to give you a quick sense, in 2016 and 2020, uh, Lycoming County went for Donald Trump by over 70%. And, uh, you know, so many folks here had this idea that they didn't like, they didn't trust government bureaucracy. They didn't like environmental regulation because that meant restriction on land use. You know, they believed, you know, and George, George would, you know, says what many people said when I asked him if it was anybody else's business, if he leased, it's my property, I'll do as I damn well please. And so there was this idea that people, uh, celebrated individualism. They celebrated self-reliance. They actually were pleased that their land uh, could, by extracting gas, could be productive and could be even contributing in some way, perhaps, to energy independence, to America not having to rely on foreign oil and gas. And so on the one hand, there was this, there was this, this love of individualism and personal sovereignty. But on the other hand, people really uh, love their neighbors and their community. I mean, this is a place where you have few new people moving in. You only have people who have remained or those who leave, right? And so, so many people were, you know, the fourth or fifth generation next door neighbors to each other. And people were very involved in civic association, right? Various voluntary groups. Uh, many people turned out at town halls and community hearings to discuss and debate local issues. And so there was a sense that people cared about the community. And so the problem, how fracking really brought to the fore this conflict between personal sovereignty and, 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 uh, and community, because on the one hand, people believe they should be able to do whatever they want on their property. And so many signed a lease without consulting with anybody else, and they didn't think it was anybody else's business. But you cannot develop oil and gas wells on someone's property without it impacting other people. Uh, of course, it most immediately impacts their neighbors in the worst-case scenario, some of which I, I found evidence of is neighbors winding up with contaminated water. Uh, but even if the worst-case scenario doesn't happen, light pollution, noise pollution, air pollution – uh, loss of rural character through industrialization and, and truck traffic. And so, so what's seen as this sort of private personal decision actually has these public consequences. And, and some landowners, as, as, as you mentioned, Bob, there were others who tried to be more communal about it from the beginning. So instead of signing a lease by themselves, they decided to basically get together with their neighbors and create landowner coalitions. So as a group, they collectively bargained and, and basically said, 
well, you can't sign me unless you also sign my neighbors. And that gave them some leverage, right? If you as a landowning coalition represented thousands of acres rather than just an individual representing 50 acres, then a gas company really wants you. And so you could get better leasing terms, maybe some more protections. And so, however, once that happened, what, the, what that was able to get was it got everybody the same bonus per acre. But after that, only a fraction of those landowners in the landowner coalition would get royalties, would wind up getting uh, you know, the gas extracted from underneath their property. And the royalties for most people is really the life-changing money because it can go for a long time and you get that check every month. And so, you know, none of the landowner coalitions I came to know were willing, for instance, to, if you imagine that you have 200 people in a landowner coalition and only 25 of them are getting royalties, I didn't meet any, any groups of landowners who were willing to have this, to split those uh, royalties among everybody in the coalition. So you still had, you know, inequality. Uh, you still had winners and losers even within a landowner's coalition. And then for those who the worst did happen, where they wound up with contaminated water, uh, many folks would, you know, fight the gas company, and the gas company liked to give individual settlements and would often make people sign a non-disclosure agreement that they couldn't talk about what had happened. And so that was a way where even people who went into it, uh, you know, at communally came out of it individually. And it's what's interesting, you point out that in the end, almost every landowner in Greater Williamsport signed a lease. Yes. And I, I want to also uh, mention the title of the book comes from the media, as you point out, the medieval Roman jurist, Accursius, whose dictum was... Uh, I don't speak Latin. Uh, maybe you can pronounce it for me. Please, please don't make me read the Latin. Okay, the Latin I'll read it. I'll, I'll mess it up. That's okay. Uh, you don't have to risk that. Uh, quius est solum, ejus est usque, ad colum uh, et ad inferno, inferos. Whoever owns the soil, it is theirs up to the heaven and down to hell. Uh, but I think that's changing a little bit because... Here in California, people are worried about the water, and drones now have an air height. They can't go below a certain height over mm -hmm. someone's house. So, no, not up to the heavens and not down to hell. That is slightly being uh, changed. Did you see anything like that uh, in, that you came across? Yeah, so, so, you know, yes, I did. And the first thing I'll say is there is no country in the world where there are absolute rights up to heaven and down to hell. So it's worthwhile thinking of it as a, as a sort of a, a goal, if you will, right? And what I say is the United States is the country that comes the closest to that of any country in the world. Uh, so for instance, in England, there's also this clause, whoever owns the soil is theirs up to heaven and down to hell. America inherited the common, pro common law property laws from, from England. But the caveat in England is that the crown retains the rights to anything valuable underneath the soil, gold, silver, oil, gas, coal. Hmm. Um, and so, but, but in the United States, so the first big thing was once we invented air travel, uh, we had to solve the problem of how planes were going to be able to fly in the sky if they were trespassing. And so that was the first major restriction on air rights was, was at that point, basically, you know, the federal government made a decision that air rights would only extend so high. Uh, and, and so there's been a lot more challenges to air rights, uh, as you point out, and, and we see this with drones and other things, than there have been to mineral rights. Um, it, you know, mineral rights still, for the most part, as I mentioned, there are cases, and this is actually more typical west of the Mississippi, where, for instance, homesteaders at, at some point were granted the surface, but the government may have retained the mineral rights. 
uh, or there may have been people who 100 or 200 years ago sold the surface separate from the mineral estate. So you sometimes have these instances where the subsurface has been severed from the surface. But aside from those instances, uh, if, if those mineral rights have not been severed, it's still the case that individuals own, own the surface, own the mineral rights and, and decide what happens to them. The challenges to that that, that you've seen have been more on, have been uh, state bans on fracking. So New York banned fracking in 2014. And so therefore, in, any individual, uh, you know, cannot lease the subsurface estate to be drilled because the state has just banned drilling, right? And as, as you alluded to, California uh, is set to stop issuing new oil and gas permits in 20, by 2024. And so that is then, you know, and there, so there are places then where the state has decided that they will, you know, they're not so much saying it's a restriction on property rights, but it's outlawing the, pro- the process itself, which has the same effect, right? Because it means that the individual cannot lease their subsurface for oil and gas development. And uh, just to, uh, to expand a little bit, uh, Akursis's dictum uh, meant that energy companies could only extract the gas beneath the landowner's and the neighbor's property if landowners gave their permission. It also meant that energy companies had to pay them a leasing bonus, compensate them for any surface disturbance to the land, and share a portion of the royalties generated by the selling uh, of the gas extracted from their estate. But here's a question I have for you relating to this. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't get permission from one particular landowner and his neighbors do give that permission, they drill down, and then they go horizontally. How do, does that landowner who wouldn't sign a lease know whether they're right. going underneath his property? You don't. Um, and, and I'm glad you asked this question because um, a lot of people that I met, I mean, as I said, I mean, everybody want, almost everybody wanted leasing in the end, and many people leased enthusiastically, but there were people who leased skeptically. And one of the things that people would say to me is, you know, I know they say that legally they can't drill underneath my property if I don't give permission. But how would I know? A mile, two miles underneath the ground? You know, you mean to tell me that, that, that like, they, they might not decide to just go right underneath my property anyway? And so some people were really skeptical about that. Um, I don't know of instances where it's been demonstrated that that happened. Um, you know, every, every company is required to create a map of where they're going to drill, and that map has to be approved by the State Department of Environmental Protection. Uh, it, I admit that I don't know how you would actually investigate that, that, that that's the case. Uh, and so, so but it's, it's an interesting question. Uh, I, don't, I have no way of knowing if there's fraud either locally or on a wide scale around that. Um, but it is this sort of myth, if you will, that people believe, uh, many people believe, even if legally it's not allowed. Well, you point out that when the landmen go up to the homeowner, uh, they lie through their teeth. Uh, I think it's endemic to the industry. So how can you tell what somebody is saying, whether they're going underneath your property and getting some, uh, some gas or not? Uh, this is, it makes it pretty difficult. Uh, but let me take this moment to reintroduce you for those who may have just tuned in. Uh, You're listening to Politics, a Love Story. Our guest today is Colin Geralmack, and his new book is Up to Heaven and Down to Hell, Fracking, Freedom, and Community in an American Town. And that town, of course, is Williamsport, Pennsylvania. So um, uh, between the two large cities uh, of Pittsburgh and Philadelphia lies a very rural area described by James Carville as Alabama. 
Uh, and so, as you pointed out, Lycoming and that other county that you mentioned both voted for Donald Trump in 16 and 20 by almost 70 to 30. Uh, so, yes, it's a very conservative area. And uh, the people, I don't think, are as political because they sound more like libertarians. Yeah. So, yeah. So, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I'm, you go right ahead. <laughs> Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, it is it is an interesting thing in that, um, I mean, so, so certainly people, you know, many people in this area voted for Trump, but I'm glad you bring up this point. My own view of them was, was in some senses, they were so much about living in, you know, a lot of them were so much about living in rural isolation and being self-reliant that, that they didn't really see themselves first and foremost as people often didn't identify as a Republican or as a conservative. They just, I mean, I think George said it best. Like George said to me when I asked him what he would call himself, he said, I'm, I'm an American. I'm just an American, you know, and I believe that everybody should be able to do what they want, live and let live, don't bother anybody else, and just get the government out of the way. Like he told me that people shouldn't have to wear, he really didn't like the, the motorcycle helmet law in Pennsylvania, <laughs> even though he didn't ride a motorcycle, because he still just felt like anybody should be able to, to drive their motorcycle, and if they want to damage their own brain, you know, that's on them. And so, yes, there was this way that I don't, you know, even if they voted for Trump, I mean, I, you know, I lived there before Trump, but I talked to people about it. And, 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 and in that way, they, they do kind of fit more the traditional way that people have written about folks in Appalachia in years past that, that almost just divorced from politics and very much just um, focused on, on themselves and their, you know, and sustaining their way of life and uh, not, you know, not so much identifying with, with a particular political group. Uh, you mentioned George, and one of the things he lamented to you as you wrote in your book is that he had unknowingly surrendered, surrendered his land sovereignty to a powerful industry that trades in misinformation. Yeah. And, this, you know, this is, Bob, this is really one of the, the great sad ironies of, of the book. Um, as, I, as I mentioned at the top of your broadcast, uh, you know, folks like George would, would you know, part of their sort of um, zest or their excitement to lease even and their defense of it was land sovereignty, right? This is my land. I can do what I want. Uh, I want to be self-reliant. And, and so there was a way in which, of course, they made money, but it also jived with their politics that no one else should be able to tell them what they want to do on their land. They were proud to be contributing to moving America towards energy independence. But one of the things that happened, as you alluded to, Austin, because of the, 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 land, the leases that landmen were able to get folks to sign, um, folks were not aware of how much sovereignty they had signed away. And so, you know, George, w I mentioned to you, he took this stretch limousine to my class. When he came to my class, I actually invited him to talk to the students about to present the perspective of someone who supports drilling. And then he told my class that he wished he didn't do it. <laughs> and, 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 and what happened, it wasn't the case that he wound up with contamination like people might have in their mind from Gasland. It was really this series of minor insults to his ability to control his property. So, you know, for instance, a security guard stationed at the top of the driveway who could put up a stop sign to stop him from being able to drive to his own house and, if, and tell him that he has to wait until heavy trucks had moved in or out. Uh, he walked, he took a shortcut across his, the well pad that the gas company was leasing to get to his backfield, and he didn't know, but there was a security camera that recorded him doing that. And the guard the next day told him that he would be arrested for trespassing if he <laughs> did it again. I mean, George was incredulous, Tres arrested for trespassing on his own property. 
he didn't know that the gas company could withdraw thousands of gallons of water from his creek every day until he saw an ad in the newspaper in the classified section that the gas company was required to print before it would begin extracting water. And all of these things the gas company was doing were legal. They were all things that it was entitled to do while it had it, 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 the lease. But George didn't know this. And so I say that George, in a, in a way, became a tenant on his own property. And, and, it's, and it's, it was, you know, it was, it's, it's really tragic because this is somebody who more than anything else, more than money, valued his sovereignty over his land. This is somebody who claims he has not overnighted anywhere else off of his land in over three decades. Uh, you know, it, this, is, this is somebody who has tied the money he's making from oil and gas leases to the property. And his, his, uh, you know, his descendants will only get it if they live on the property and don't develop it. And so, so, so he cherishes the land and, and sovereignty over it, but it's the thing that he lost from leasing his land to the gas company. But um, if these people, some of these people, whether the groups or the individuals, had consulted with a land use attorney, not their local uh, guy who does divorces and, uh, and wills <laughs> and things, but a guy yeah. who un- or a woman who understood... Land use law, and especially in Pennsylvania, because as you point out, maybe we'll talk about it a little later, but Act 3, I think it is, or Act 13? 13. Act 13, 13. which takes away a lot of the autonomy of the landowner. But the point is, they could have negotiated for better terms in every which way. They didn't have Mm -hmm. to give away their sovereignty if they knew what they could hold on to. You point yeah. that out in your book, in a sense, but then on the mm-hmm. other hand, you have another person, and maybe it was even George, who did consult an attorney and didn't like the response, and he said he'd never speak to an attorney again. <laughs> yes. So, so, and this gets back to this point you made about how uh, deceptive oil and gas companies or their representatives can be, and how powerful it can be to hold all or most of the information. So in this particular region... There is a history of vertical drilling, which is not horizontal drilling and fracking, right? Basically, you poke a shallow hole and you hope that there are pockets of freed gas that flow to the surface. Uh, Vertical drilling has only happened on a really small scale, and it's not nearly as disruptive as horizontal drilling. And so, George, there had been prior leases that his father signed for vertical drilling over the years. And in most instances, nothing ever came of vertical drilling. But so when these oil and gas companies started poking around in 2006, 2007, they looked up and they saw who had, who, what landowners had previously signed leases for very little, $5 an acre, for vertical drilling, and basically went to those homeowners and pitched it in a way that homeowners, landowners presumed they didn't know that there was this new thing of horizontal drilling and fracking that was going to be far more disruptive and that was going to be far more lucrative. And so a lot of them, to be honest, and yes, you could ultimately, some might pin the blame on them. They didn't pay that close attention to the lease because they or their parents had signed leases like this for decades and nothing ever came of it. Or even if there was a vertical well drilled on the property, it, you didn't even notice it. It's just like a little fire hydrant sitting there. And, think- so, and so George was one of those people. Um, the other thing I would say is that um, some, even people who did hire lawyers, it is the case that lawyers in the area, if they didn't hire a, a, a more big shot lawyer from Pittsburgh or Philadelphia, and most of them didn't, if you hired a local lawyer, they, did, they too were operating with an old understanding from vertical, from vertical wells. And so they, they themselves, and as you, George actually did have an attorney. George's attorney approved his lease. 
and what, what the attorneys were told, and in a way here, even the attorneys didn't have enough information, oil and gas companies would often say that the lease they were offering was standard. And what they meant by standard was it was take it or leave it, that you know, we will not alter the terms. This is the standard lease. There actually is no such thing as a standard lease. There's incredible variation. So as I, t- I talk about in the book, one person who not only you know, was able to negotiate better bonus, leasing bonus terms, but negotiated that they could only drill horizontally underneath their property, so no surface disturbance. So some other neighbor would have had to have the surface disturbance of the gas wells, and they could only go horizontally underneath their property. So you could do those things. But almost nobody knew you could do those things. And even people that hired lawyers, the lawyers did not have enough experience. I mean, think about it. Yes, they have a law degree, but you're talking about multi-billion dollar companies. Hmm. They can figure out ways to write these leases in a way that can fool lawyers, unless these lawyers are incredibly well-versed in land leasing. And the, but the first deception starts with the land man. And I'm yeah. using this as a segue to... Uh, the uh, the song you wrote in your book that was uh, sung to the tune of Radiohead's Creep, and, and this is about a landman. You signed a lease. I looked you in the eye. Felt kind of guilty, but still I made you sign. You asked me some questions, but I just deny. I wish I was a local, but instead I'm just a yokel. Because I'm a creep, I'm a gas hole. That, uh, yeah, that's Russell Poole. <laughs> Uh, that was a, a pretty, uh, uh, an, a, pretty much of an indictment against the landmen who go out there and uh, create the first contact and lie through their teeth, mm-hmm. and set the stage yeah. for continued lies by the rest of the people that they meet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and just to just to make this clear for your listeners, uh, the person who sang that song, uh, tongue in cheek, was a landman, Russell Poole when I was out at karaoke with him. So he was making fun of, you know, this understanding of landmen, a snake oil salesman, was so well known that he decided to make his own version of it for karaoke. Um, you know, but what I, what I will say is that, the, what, and I, you know, what I say in the next breath, though, in the book, is that the time I spent with Russell, I, I followed him while he worked and I hung out with him, is he was endlessly fielding calls from neighbors of the folks that he leased who got his phone number and said, hey, hey, come on over, come on over, I'm ready to sign a lease. You know, and so, so it's to say that Russell's perspective was, you know, look, I don't have to go in there and do a whole lot to make most people sign. A lot of people feel like Ed McMahon knocked on the door and, I won the, and they won the publisher's sweepstakes when I show up and say that, you know, that, that they can get a leasing bonus and they can get royalties. And so from his perspective, he didn't see himself as a bad guy. And often he would you know, he would get phone calls from people after they got their first check thanking him. Um, and he had a lot of, like, thank you letters and voicemails and emails that he had received from people. And so, you know, Russell very much, you know, didn't see himself as a bad person that was taking advantage of people. So even though he sang that song, that was his awareness that people would often, you know, uh, denigrate the landman. But he himself felt very much like he was uh, doing a good thing for people. And then we get to another uh, small topic here, uh, and you talk about a woman, Cindy, who was entangled in a resource dilemma. Could you please explain that? Yes. Yeah, so a resource dilemma, this is, this is a term that, that, that some environmental scholars, climatologists and the like use to talk about a situation where uh, every individual may understand that making a lot of waste 
or using a lot of resources will lead to destruction in the long run, right? So whether that's, whether that's using up all of the rainforest, lumber in the rainforest, or pumping carbon in the atmosphere, but every individual still continues to not change their behavior to conserve a resource. And the reason why they, they, they don't change their behavior is because they understand that unless everybody changes their behavior, there won't actually be a tangible difference. So they might as well reap some benefits themselves uh, in the short term. I mean, just to give you an example, Bob, if you decided tomorrow to live off the grid, to use no electricity, to, make, you know, to have a compost toilet, to create zero waste, the world wouldn't notice, right? The world wouldn't notice. It would be such a, a, a minor subtraction of energy use and waste. You would need billions of people to do that, to make a tangible difference. And so, so then, you know, even those among us who, who want to be as environmental as possible, it can often feel, well, why bother? Why bother to sacrifice so much when everybody else is living high off the hog, right? And so, so as this relates to Cindy in a very consequential way, um, Cindy is one of the most committed environmentalists that I know. She participated in the first Earth Day. Uh, she was a part of a lawsuit filed against the state of Pennsylvania for leasing its public lands for oil and gas drilling and using those, converting those royalties to the general fund. And actually, the lawsuit was successful. And the lawsuit argued that, that uh, and what, what the organization she was a part of argued was that any royalties made from oil and gas drilling on public land should go into further conserving public land and mitigating the damage. Um, she was involved in a lot of other environmental activities in which she was volunteering her time. And yet, and, and I should say Cindy, who is relatively well off, uh, her and her husband own 150 bucolic acres with a man-made pond at the middle. It's a mixture of fields and woods. They, they uh, signed a conservation easement so that that property will be protected in perpetuity. It can't be developed. Uh, and, and so Cindy is very much an environmentalist, very much uh, you know, practices what she preaches on a day-to-day -day basis. And so when the landman started coming around knocking on her door, she said over and over again, no, thank you, threw away the paperwork that was left behind. And then finally, after about three to four years of this, she leased. Uh, she leased. She signed a very restrictive lease. A non-surface disturbance clause was in there, so they could only drill a mile deep. So it was still in concordance with her conservation easement because, as she said, they could not touch a fern or a rock on the surface. But nonetheless, by leasing, she plays a, pa a small part in furthering the extraction of this fossil fuel which she is fighting against, right? Hmm. And this really gets to this, this aspect of this, of this um, resource dilemma, because precisely what Cindy experienced and was involved with in, in, in real life, in real time, was a resource dilemma. So basically, in those years that Cindy did not sign the lease, everyone around her, everyone around her leased. Right across the street from her, they cut out the, 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 the side of a mountain, leveled it to make this massive well pad that had a drilling rig, uh, that had like trucks going day and night, potholes all over the street, wrecking the shocks of her car. You know, trucks when they're coming out of the out of the well pad across the way, driving onto her property. Um, noise pollution, light pollution, so much flaring at night that you couldn't see the night stars anymore. And and for years she experienced this and realized that the entire area around her had been transformed into a gritty mining town, and that her holding out didn't do anything. It didn't stop the development of the area. And so finally, her decision to lease was really a decision about just getting some kind of recompense for the quality of life disturbance she had already been enduring for three or four years. She actually started to feel like a fool. 
because she was endlessly spending time, you know, calling the gas company, calling the Department of Environmental Protection to report infractions, to try to get people to do something, getting nowhere. This was taking over her life. And meanwhile, she wasn't getting any kind of compensation for the damages and for what she experienced. And so she really viewed the leasing bonus as, as a payment of damages, if you will, right? Hmm. And she realized that holding out hadn't actually done anything to stop fracking in the area. Um, I was thinking about, uh, I guess you had a few reasons for going not just to Pennsylvania, but to Williamsport. And one of the things that you mentioned in your book is that Pennsylvania commands the lion's share of the 90,000 square mile and mile deep supergiant gas field known as the Marcellus uh, Shale Field. And over 12,000 wells have been drilled since 2004, and over 9,000 additional permits have been issued. And one other thing, Peter Herdick put Williamsport on the map after he moved there in 1846 when the population was about 1,700 people. He created a lumber industry, and there was a huge lumber boom that eventually Mm -hmm. became a lumber bust. No one who was involved in fracking in and around uh, Williamsport ever thought back to that. Otherwise, they would have realized (laughs) after almost every boom comes a bust. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, uh, you know, Williamsport, it's actually hard to overstate how much wealth for a very short period lumber brought to the Williamsport area. I actually lived on what was known as Millionaire's Row. I lived in a subdivided mansion where, uh, there were so many people that, you know, millionaires minted from, from, uh, from lumber in this area. And Williamsport at one point in the, in the late 1800s milled the most board feet of lumber anywhere in the world that all these millionaires, you know, these lumber barons built these massive mansions on, on, on so-called millionaires row. And I lived in, in an apartment in one of those subdivided mansions. Uh, and, you know, that boom lasted about 20 years. And then, of course, what happened is there was no more lumber. And, hmm. and, and, and Williamsport basically had this huge population buildup, all this infrastructure, houses, you know, uh, in, you know uh, utilities and the like. But then there's no more lumber. And so there was a massive bust. And, 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 and so began an exodus of people uh, and, and status of that region. You know, the sad thing about natural gas is it went from boom to bust in about four years. Hmm. So it did not last nearly as long. I mean, you're talking about they really didn't start, uh, their, you know, the boom years of really a lot of drilling rigs in the area, a lot of people getting royalties, leasing bonuses, was about 2010 to 12. And in this very tiny window, Williamsport went all in on gas drilling. And certainly, as you alluded to, uh, people didn't seem to take as caution what had happened to Williamsport a century before. Uh, they built five new hotels. In, in the, I mean, you're talking about a town of only 29,000 people. They built five new hotels because there was all these oil and gas workers coming in from oil. Uh, I mean, pardon me, from uh, Texas, Colorado, uh, North Dakota. They, you know, they, they created restaurants to cater to these workers like Texas barbecue houses. Uh, there was all these ways that the entire town pivoted and went all in on, on oil and gas drilling. But, you know, all of a sudden we got all this gas out of the ground. And basically, the United States does not have the infrastructure for that much methane. Uh, you know, we, we, and so, so basically what happened is the price of gas went so low, and fracking is actually an expensive process. It's far more expensive than the more traditional way of just poking holes in the ground. And so once, once the price point didn't make it worthwhile, um, the companies left. And, and, and actually, some of the wells got shut down temporarily. 
And so then all of a sudden these hotels are at half occupancy. Uh, they're, you know, companies. So for instance, this one company called New Weld, which had been around since the early 90s, uh, was, you know, it was able to reap a lot of money and jobs from, from, from welding, you know, welding pipelines and, and other sorts of things related to fracking. But it went all in and, and around fracking that it went belly under. Uh, in 2016 with the fracking bust, right? And so this is a company that actually was around and surviving before fracking, but wasn't able to hold on afterwards. And so, um, and I should say too, that even in the boom years, it's arguable how much it actually improved the economy. Individuals who made leasing bonuses and royalties, yes. But often what we talk about, and I think what's most associated with fracking in people's minds is jobs. And I just want to note that I, I mentioned this in the book, but in the boom years where there was the most drilling, there was the most new building construction going on that people call the boom years of fracking in the area around, you know, 2010 to 2012, if you want to say into 2013, unemployment did not go down in Pennsylvania. And on top of that, unemployment did go down in 43 other states. And so most states, even many that did not have shale gas or oil drilling, experienced unemployment going down. And Pennsylvania at the height of its, quote, boom, did not even have unemployment go down. Hmm. Yeah, that creates a, a big problem. And uh, I can see why uh, the only thing that Williamsport has left of renown is the fact that it's the home to the world uh, of the Little League World Series. Uh, yes. Where people, kids come from all over. Uh, Taiwan was a, a winner a couple of times, I believe. Uh, mm -hmm. But one of the other problems that we have is that the United States is the only country in the world where private individuals own a majority of the subsurface estate. So uh, there's nothing to prevent this from happening other places and going on into the future. Yeah, so, so and I think that that's a really important point, Bob. And why that point is so important is I think there's, I think there's an idea that people have if they think about fracking, but that how fracking proceeds or not is based on who wins out in this political debate and activism mobilization around whether we should support fracking or whether we should not frack, right? The reality is that because, you know, fracking is really thousands of choices made by individuals who sit down on their own with a representative of an oil and gas company and decide often without talking to anyone else, whether to lease their mineral rights, right? And collectively, this is what leads to many new oil and gas wells being drilled or not drilled if people refuse to sign. But so it's not really this collective decision in the way that in other countries where the government owns the majority of the mineral rights, then the government makes a decision where arguably they, they consider what's in the public interest, right, and make a decision. But so there is no sort of decision of the state, we're going to frack or not frack. It's a decision of a bunch of individuals privately. Of course, the big exceptions to this, as far as where you could stop it, is, as I've mentioned and as you mentioned, New York State did ban fracking as a state in 2014. And California is set to ban fracking, at least new oil and gas wells, by 2024. So that's the level at which it can occur, is if states decide to ban a practice, they can. Yeah, but the difficulty is that... Uh... Uh, even if here in California we stop it going from 2024 forward, there's still all the damage that can be done until 2024. Um, so that is, it's such an important point. It's such an important point. And I, I just want to say here that, that I'm glad you say that because, so for instance, in Pennsylvania, 
uh, there has been a moratorium on the leasing of public lands, like state forests, since for almost 10 years now. However, they're still drilling the heck out of that place because there was, a, you know, they, because the state auctioned off hundreds of thousands of acres before that moratorium went into effect. And so all of those acres are still available to be drilled and theoretically are available to be drilled for decades. And so you're absolutely right. And that was one of the things that I was most bothered by when I saw, I was a little surprised given how much the state was trumpeting the ban that it would only apply to the issuing of new oil and gas leases and not to, you know, banning of fracking altogether in the way that New York state has done. Well, as we've seen in the, uh, the last election, um, Republicans still run the legislature, both houses. But uh, Tom Wolf came in as the Democratic uh, candidate for governor, and he won. But he has limited power. Uh, I think that they still have enough of a majority in both houses that they can overturn his veto. I'm not positive about that, Mm -hmm. but that still presents big problems. They can still do, as we just discussed, a lot of other things that uh, nobody wants. Um, Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say um, that it's a good point. I mean, really, the governor of Pennsylvania is much like President Biden. So President Biden can ban new oil and gas leases on public land, right, on federally owned land. He cannot ban fracking um, through executive action on private property. That would require congressional action. And it's the exact same thing. You know, you're, you're right. You know, Governor Wolf is limited in what he can do on his own through executive action. He needs, you know, he, he for a lot of things, he would need the legislature and the Republican uh, legislature in Pennsylvania is still all in on fracking. Well, the fact that few lessers hit the jackpot while most of them experience some mm-hmm. degradation in their quality of life has led some analysts to conclude that petroleum companies exploited the vulnerability of marginalized small scale farmers and homeowners. And in this way, private mineral ownership a peculiarly American idea made fracking compatible with the American dream, even as it created new socioeconomic disparities, exposed landowners to significant environmental risks, and oftentimes left lessers holding the bag. Those are your words from your book. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> thank you. I mean, that's, that's one of... Uh, thank you for reading that passage. It's a very, it's a very important one. And, and I think... You know, I think here there's there's a real on my there was a real discomfort on my part in how to portray the individuals who lease their land because it seems apparent to me that if you are an individual landowner, uh, especially if you don't have a lot of money and you leased to this gas company and you had some and in some instances had very terrible things happen to you, right? Like contaminated water, um, and meanwhile the oil and gas company is is you know is is making a lot of money hand over fist. Uh, and, and sometimes running, you know, trampling on your property, uh, it seems to me that you are a victim, right, even if you signed a lease voluntarily. But what's interesting is that while some of the landowners I met were upset about what happened to them, and even in some instances were suing the gas company, they would say to me things like, I'm not a victim. Nobody held a gun to my head to lease. I'm pissed at this gas company, and I'm going to sue them, but I'm not against fossil fuel extraction. And I still don't think that the government should come in here and regulate all this. And so there's this way that uh, some folks that I came to know really resisted the idea that they were victims, even if they realized that the gas company that they were dealing with had personally done them wrong. And this, I think, is where their partisan identity really comes in, 
they were still so loath of the idea of government bureaucracy and environmental regulation that for them, the answer when things went wrong was individual, was to sue, sue for breach of contract, right? But they did not see the answer as regulating the fossil fuel industry. Uh, and, and, and as I said, some folks really didn't like, I mean, there was one individual, Doyle Bodle, who was literally holding a container of brown water mm. that came out of his faucet, saying to me, nobody held a gun to my head. And, you know, other people have bad water for other reasons. So, you know, nobody's safe. And it was, it was hard. It was hard for me to reconcile, to be honest. Let me take this opportunity to reintroduce you. You're listening to Politics, a Love Story. Uh, our guest today is Colin Dralmack. His book is Up to Heaven and Down to Hell, Fracking, Freedom, and Community in an American Town. Uh, I want to talk about, because we're mm, close, not, not that close, but pretty close to the end. And I want to talk about some of the difficulties that individuals have had. Uh, and there were two, yeah. two things. One, NDAs, non-disclosure agreements. Uh, we've seen that with the previous guy as president and lots of other areas. <laughs> Uh, these things prevent the public from knowing about heinous acts committed by people, mm -hmm. and yet it is allowed to continue. And in, uh, in your book, what you referred to these as, in many cases where some companies offer any kind of settlement to impacted landowners, they require them to sign an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement. The ubiquity of NDAs makes it difficult to assess how many cases of water contamination from shale gas uh, exist in Pennsylvania. Uh, gas, yeah. gas land showed uh, in Dimmick, which is a little bit uh, northeast of, uh, of Williamsport, where a guy's faucet went on fire when he was uh, having the water run because of methane leaking into his well. But how many others yeah. uh, signed NDAs in order to uh, get that away and not have to deal with it? Yeah, we'll never know. Um, it, I mean, I shouldn't say we'll never know. There, maybe there will be a really fantastic investigative reporter that will, you know, make this their mission. But um, I, you know, I, I came to know seven families who had water, and there's probably more, but seven families that I got to know in the county whose water was impacted by gas drilling and, and was confirmed by the Department of Environmental Protection in their own independent assessment to have been caused by gas drilling. And for each, for each of those families, it, the same thing happened. So they had a baseline water test before drilling happened on a neighboring property. In, in every case, it wasn't even their own property. It was a neighbor's property. Wound up with explosive levels of methane in their water and in, in a couple cases, other chemicals in their water as well. Uh, the DEP says, the gas company did this. The gas company denies. The gas company in the beginning delivers bottled water, but not claim, not saying that they're responsible, but as a, quote, good neighbor policy. They, they deliver bottled water since residents can't drink their water anymore. And then the gas company uh, did their own, quote, independent assessment and mailed out a two-inch thick binder reporting hmm. why it's not their fault that the water's contaminated and claiming that the water was contaminated before they ever got there. Uh, refuses to give them any money refused to do anything more, and actually stopped delivering bottled water. Once the gas company concluded its own assessment, said goodbye to even the bottled water, the good neighbor policy. And so, uh, you know, you folks find themselves in a real bind. Uh, you know, it, it might not even have the money to hire a competent lawyer. And you just want to get this over with. I mean, because, by the way, that whole, that whole timeline I just gave you plays out over years. You know, you're talking about, I mean, one couple 
by the time I came to know them, it was already four years without being able to drink their water. It would be three more years before they reached a settlement. And they only reached a settlement when they agreed to sign a non-disclosure agreement. And I, I mentioned that briefly in the book that they were so shook that even though that couple had signed a non-disclosure agreement with me after they talked to me, and their case was very public, they held a press conference, nothing I really said in my book was not something they had already said publicly that you could find on the internet. They were still so shaken and intimidated and weary and just wanting to get this over with that they, they asked me to take them out of the book, even if I used pseudonyms um, and changed any identifying information, because that's how scared they were. Uh, that the gas company would still come after them, and they just wanted to put this behind them. Well, that was the next thing I was going to get to, uh, because mm. it, it, you expanded on further indignities they had to bear. Uh, it wasn't just the bottled water. They ate, ate off of paper plates, washed their hands with towelettes, and they had to go to town to take a shower. They were just so yeah. tired and beaten. So they gave in, they said, despite the injustice of it all, and took a settlement and signed the NDA. That's a terrible yeah. feeling they must have had after all that, uh, that stuff they had to endure. And they probably didn't get a whole lot. You pointed out that no. uh, they were very parsimonious, those gas companies, with what they doled out. Yeah. And I would just say that, too, is for these individuals, it also stifles their free speech. And that may, you know, for some people that may not be such a big thing because maybe they just don't want to talk about it. But this one couple, the husband actually was planning to write a memoir called Fractured Fairy Tale about what happened to them. I mean, this was something he talked about when I was there. It was something he was talking about years later. And so, you know, that's actually really, that, to me, that's a really big loss in addition to the loss of their water and their ability to ever sell their property. Well, you also point out that while fracking promised a modicum of economic security, the price for some residents was not only their land sovereignty, but also their psychological sovereignty. Mm. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, and that's, that's, I think, a, 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 you know, for, for listeners, that might be a more abstract uh, point. Uh, so if I, thank you for inviting me to say a bit about that. Yeah, and by that I mean, you know, that it, it, it takes over your life. It, it creates, you know, for a lot of folks, um, it, you can understand why after what we just talked about with folks that went through the contaminated water, um, you know, it's, it's sometimes hours per day spent trying to talk to representatives of the gas company or trying to get through the Department of, Department of Environmental Protection. It's being un unable to sleep sometimes because the flaring of burning off a nearby gas wall that's just been drilled roars like a jet engine. It's the constant jolt when you're driving in your car of the potholes. And, and basically, I, I say it really invades people's psyche. Many people chose to live in this region or stay there because it is tranquil, quiet, dark at night, rural. And now it's, it's, there's, sometimes, you know, there's dynamite explosions sometimes when they're doing seismic testing to decide where to drill. There's helicopters flying low overhead to deliver supplies to mountaintop sites. There's all of the caravans of trucks and everything else. And so, you know, many people come, you know, people that have been living there for generations feel disconnected. They say, this isn't the landscape that I knew. This isn't the rural tranquility that makes me like this place. And some people moved out. And so, so, so the gas company doesn't just violate the sovereignty of your land. They violate your, the, your psychological sovereignty, your ability to have peace, to, to, to have a sense of security, because also the landscape becomes insecure in that way, right? It becomes a sense of danger, and it's ever-changing. 
There are two more small uh, uh, things I'd like to read because we're getting near the end, and I want to hear what you have to sure. say about uh, Pennsylvania Act 13. So the public hearing process made it look like local governments had the power to deny a gas well, but they really had no such power because in Pennsylvania, Act 3 ensured that. And after a Board of Supervisors denial of a permit was brought before Lycoming County Judge, before a Lycoming County Judge, she overruled the Board of Supervisors. Local sovereignty (laughs) was overruled. So please explain Act 13. And we just got about a minute. No problem. When the oil and gas industry first came into Pennsylvania, they said it can't be that every time we go to we go to a new county or a new town, there's different regulations as far as, for instance, how well, far away a gas well can be from drinking water. We need uniform standards. So Pennsylvania is a home rule state where historically communities can control land use through zoning. What Act 13 did was it preempted municipalities' ability to regulate fracking through zoning. And so you could not stop fracking from occurring in an area that was zoned residential or zoned rural, for instance, even though other industries could be kept out through zoning. And so that is what I mean when I say that, that that's the most significant way that Act 13 took away local municipalities' ability. There were still permit hearings, but if, if, if local board of supervisors decided to try to deny a water withdrawal permit or a guest drilling permit, in some instances they were sued, and in other instances it was overruled by a judge. And so they really didn't have a choice but to allow oil and gas permits and water withdrawal permits, even if locals didn't want them. Well, let me tell you, Colin, this was a very enjoyable conversation we had, and I really liked reading your book. You gave us so much information, and there were so many things that as much as I thought I knew about Pennsylvania, I really didn't. And so, once again, I want to thank you and tell our public that you were listening to Colin Geralmack about his book, Up to Heaven and Down to Hell, Fracking, Freedom, and Community in an American Town. I think this is a a book worth reading. Thank you very much, Colin. Thank you, Bob. It's been a great conversation. I really appreciate uh, how closely you read my work and the great <laughs> questions that you asked. Well, thank you. Uh, hopefully you'll do another one, and I'll speak to you again. That would be wonderful. Okay, so thank you for listening. I'll see you next time. This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.